Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to have Mark Roseman on the show. Mark is a historian of modern Europe and of the Holocaust, and is the author of a really terrific new book titled Lives Reclaimed, A Story of Rescue and Resistance in Nazi Germany. The book is a careful examination of a, and and here I use the word organization, and and I'm going to ask Mark to kind of give his take on what word is appropriate for this. But but a small organization uh, in its English translation called League, Community for Socialist Life. Generally referred to uh, in the book by its German shorthand, the Bund, Bund was founded in the 1920s to inspire Germans to create a new, more ethical, and more communal world. The emergence of Nazi rule forced the Bund to consider how it could achieve its goals and even survive in a much different political climate than it had originally faced. As the members um, went about their lives and tried to uh, envision a new uh, way of acting in this new world, uh, they strove to discern what living their ideals meant in a Nazi world and, and how to do it safely. It's an extraordinary story and one that Mark tells well. I'm looking forward to talking with him about it. So with that, Mark, welcome, and thanks for joining us in New Studies. Well, thanks so much for having me. Mark, we always start in the same place. Um, I'd love it if you could tell uh, the audience a little bit about yourself and about how you became a historian. I am a historian, as you can hear originally from the UK. <laughs> I did my training in the UK, I uh, came to the US to Indiana University in 2004, and I've been there ever since. Uh, it's hard to know how one becomes something one can easily invent narratives, but I can remember one really striking moment um, when I was, I guess, uh, uh, doing what we would call A-level, so that's the sort of uh, last two, two years of high school. Uh, I used to go down to the reference library in Leeds, which is the city where I grew up. And somebody had left open on uh, a table there uh, a copy of the book The Yellow Star by Gerhard Schoenbach, which was one of the first books uh, about the Holocaust, which included lots of photographs. And this is in the 70s, just to date myself. (laughs) Um, and at that point in the UK, there really wasn't that much talked about the Holocaust. Uh, I came from a Jewish family, and it wasn't really a subject of conversation. I mean, I knew that the Nazis were uh, bad, but exactly what had happened. And these photos, particularly the ones of after the war, of mm. all the bodies being bulldozed into mass graves at Belsen, utterly uh, threw me. Um, and I think that was an important moment in in making uh, 
the history of national socialism sort of existential. I know you're part of a Jewish studies uh, program in Indiana, which I know is pretty good. Do you want to take just a moment and, and talk about that program? Uh, yes, I um, have been. I have a joint appointment in history and Jewish studies, and since uh, 2012, I've been directing the uh, Bourne's Jewish Studies program. Um, we are, in fact, one of the biggest in the U.S. and, and in fact, in the world. We have the largest Jewish studies major, I think, pretty well anywhere uh, in the U.S. Uh, we have uh, 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, faculty um, and some adjunct faculty. Uh, we're extraordinarily active. We have two centers, a center for the study of contemporary anti-Semitism and one for scholarly and cultural exchange uh, with Israel. Uh, we have speakers coming in and out almost every week. And so it's been a, a, an amazing place to, uh, to work and study uh, and and learn for me. It's certainly in the UK, there's nothing like it, um, and it's very unusual here. Uh, and the Midwest <laughs> isn't necessarily a place where you'd find such a thing. Uh, but uh, a colleague of mine who's still present, Alvin oh. Rosenfeld, sort of really got the thing going in the 70s, and with a group of generous-minded backers from Indianapolis, uh, began to create endow. Uh, lectureships and uh, professorships and uh, and now there's this remarkable midwestern thing uh, with uh, as I say the biggest Jewish studies major uh, in the US with uh, a large group of PhD students and so on so yeah so that and then the history department makes it a, a really a wonderful place to to work so you see in your acknowledgments to the book that's uh You've been working on and off uh, on the subject of the Bund for 20-odd years. How, how did you discover this group, and how did you get so interested? Yeah, so it came through another book, which I, I, I wrote 20 years ago, which was a, a, the biography of a young woman who survived, a young Jewish woman who survived underground in, uh, in Nazi Germany. And... Um, I, I came across her uh, really by accident. I, I, my, for my PhD, which had nothing to do with this, I had lived in the Ruhr area, which is a big industrial area in, in northern Germany, and had got to know the historical community there well. And uh, when I was back in the UK, uh, a museum in the region asked me if I would interview a survivor who was now living in the UK for a, an exhibition they were doing. Um, uh, because they wanted an aural exhibit for this exhibition about her life during the war. And so I went up to Liverpool and interviewed this woman, a very formidable, impressive woman Mm. called uh, Marianne Ellenbogen. Um, And she told me about her her life, but I wasn't working on the Holocaust at the time, and I didn't fully appreciate the significance. Some years later, I went back to her to ask her if she'd do something else for a TV program and she didn't want to do that but she was it turned out she was very ill and she had uh, a document she wanted to show me um, and to ask me if I thought that it should go into an archive so luckily I didn't waste time and went to see her and she showed me an amazing letter uh, pencil written (laughs) 17 pages long which turned out to be from a former fiance of hers who'd been deported Mm. from Germany to Poland um, and uh, and was utterly remarkable. And that was the first inkling I had that she uh, herself had had an amazing story and also that she, her story was unbelievably well documented. So I started uh, working on her life with her permission and uh, uh, and I learned that she, for two critical years had been helped and kept alive by this group, the League for Socialist Life. So that was my first encounter with them, was that they were part of this story of the trajectory of this woman who who then had been called Marianne Strauss 
uh, after the war, she was Marianne Ellenbogen, uh, uh, from 43 to 45. And uh, I wrote a biography, but I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to go back and look at the group. So uh, maybe we can start by asking you, what is the Bund? Where did they come from? What, when did they arise? Um, what are they? Well, people will know mm-hmm. the, the word Bund, and m- many people will instantly think of the, uh, mm. the Jewish workers' Bund uh, in Poland. So it was a, it was a common word. Uh, it meant league or association. And uh, because the word Bund is also the word for covenant mm. in the biblical covenant, it has a, a sense, uh, it has at least a connotation of a very strong bond, uh, although it can also uh, be used more generally for a league or, as I say, or a federation. Um, in, the, in the interwar period, it took on a particular uh, uh, meaning because a whole series of youth groups emerged after the First World War in Germany, which called themselves Bund of one sort or another. They were all understood themselves as tightly organized groups, often led by a charismatic individual, which were seeking to create a new kind of community. So that's, in a way, the, the, the sort of larger world in which this group emerged. Um, although... Uh, the, the founders were, were were no longer young youngsters. Uh, Arta Jacobs, who was the sort of leading uh, figure, had been born in 1880. So when the group was created in 1923, he was already in his 40s. But most of the uh, other members were were about a generation younger, so they were in their their 20s. Um, it, it emerged from a, a group of listeners at adult education classes that uh, Jacobs had been teaching, which were sort of holistic in style. And what it, what it wanted to do was create a kind of a community that would sort of work towards creating a better society, a socialist society, but which also uh, wanted, in, in terms of their day-to-day interactions, to practice being ethical. Uh, and they were very influenced not just by Marx and their vision of a socialist society, but also by Kant, uh, the, the German philosopher, in the idea uh, that, uh, that you, you had to work towards uh, a, a sense, a, an understanding of freedom, that you were only really free if you fully sort of incorporated the understanding in your behavior that you were part of a community. In other words, if you didn't find others' needs and wishes and imposition on yourself, but were actually already built into your own sense of what was good and what was right, only then would you really be free. So f- freedom for them had this ethical component of of uh, of uh, behaving right in the community. Um, so, so from the beginning, they had this uh, commitment to making the right everyday choices, as well as also sort of thinking about how to how to create the better society. Do, do they see themselves in this term in terms of this long term project? Is this do they see themselves as 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 hoping as aiming for something practical, or do they see this vision as a kind of utopian ideal to aspire to, but won't re- be reached for decades or centuries? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, it's a bit of a mixture because on the one hand, they were very scornful about Mm. uh, romantic idealists and they were very committed to being in the here and now and being in an industrial heartland and engaging with the practical problems of of today. And they thought a lot about people's issues at work and they thought a lot about people's issues in their marriage and uh, how women and men could be equal partners. Uh, So there was a lot of practical thinking about the here and now. Uh, On the other hand, they were not um, sort of politically Mm -hmm. strategic uh, in the sense of thinking about alliances to change the system this way or that. It was much more conceived as a sort of long-term educational project that you would gradually disseminate your values, win over new 
listeners at lectures and events and edu- adult education classes and and more. So in that sense, it was very uh, the the vision of societal change was Did very. How long many term. people were involved in this in the twenties and early thirties? It's hard to know exactly because when the Nazis came, the group burnt a lot of its material and particularly anything that might help identify the earlier membership. Uh, um, The documentation that remains for the Nazi era is really remarkable and that's one of the things that really Mm -hmm. uh, drew me to writing about them. But, uh, But they did destroy a lot before, so it's a little bit speculative. But uh, I think one won't go far wrong in thinking that probably mm. 200 regular members and then a, a, a larger crowd of people who would come uh, and uh, attend events and so on. And they had um, groups that, that, that the central city was Essen and uh, they also had a group in Wuppertal, in Mülheim. Well, these are all cities uh, in the Ruhr or just south of the uh, of the Ruhr region. This was there. Kind of yeah, I was, I was stunned as I read with the level of commitment on the part of the members of the Bund, but also in the kind of activity, the level of activity that the leaders and the group as a whole conducted, given how, how many, 200 in one sense is a lot of people, but on the, on, on a, on viewed in a different way, it's a really small group of people. And they do a lot in the period uh, in that community in the 20s and early 30s. Yes, they were super active. Uh, they ran lots of adult education classes. They also uh, uh, took over a couple of um, elementary schools to try and revolutionize the uh, curriculum. Um, uh, the the mm-hmm. Arto Jacobs, the sort of founder, his wife, Dora Jacobs, uh, was uh, somebody who'd been inspired by new forms of gymnastics. Uh, she was born in uh, in, in uh, 1894 and uh, before the war, and then immediately after she had uh, she had studied. She'd been very inspired by Jacques Delcourt, who was person behind what became known in the. UK and US as sort of music and movement as, as new ways of learning music through uh, through through movement, but in in Germany it took on a kind of uh, and I think in Dalcourt's hands himself as a, a sort of more broader philosophical sense of liberating the individual through new ways of movement. And Dora uh, began to pioneer her own approach to movement. She created a, a school for gymnastics and what was in Germany mm-hmm. called Körperbildung, body training, and um, rhythmic, which is in fact what, what in, in the English language was called eurythmics. And so she also created this school, and in the 1920s she was educating pupils, and quite a few of them came through her school uh, to the group, so they were also putting on public displays of, of, of movement and so on, and in, in that way also conveying a holistic philosophy of, of of society, mind, body, uh, which which also helped to win over some new followers. So yeah, they were extraordinarily active, and you know it is possible that there were even mm. more yeah. uh, regular members. I mean, I was conservative, um, as I say. You know, I'm sure there were there would be lots more names that one would be conjuring with if the group hadn't been so assiduous in in burning its materials uh, early in 1933. So maybe that's the next question. How, how does the Bund respond to both the, the increasing visibility and popularity of the Nazi party and then to the, the Nazi possession and solidification of political power? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think it was pretty obvious to everyone from around 1930 that the Nazis were a major threat because uh, uh, they were uh, gaining in visibility. And then in September 1930, they did extraordinarily well in the uh, national elections and suddenly uh, were clearly a major political player. Uh, So I think everybody on the left was aware of that. Some uh, took it less seriously than the others. The Bund certainly was was worried, 
and uh, were uh, trying to uh, bring the big uh, left-wing parties, the socialists and the communists, who were rather bitterly divided together uh, and wanted to be themselves mm. a kind of vanguard to... But uh, again, there's sort of that strange mixture of, on the one hand, you know, clear-sighted and practicality. Mm. But on the un- on the other side, it really wasn't quite clear what the, their strategy was. Uh, nevertheless, they were aware of it. But I think they had no real sense of what it would mean for them if the Nazis would come to power. So I think 1933, when the Nazis came to power, especially a few weeks after when they sort of consolidated their control over local institutions and the police and so on was an absolute shock. Um, as you can imagine, lives were turned absolutely upside down. Uh, very quickly, the group was made illegal. Uh, Dora, because she was, uh, Dora Jacobs was Jewish. Uh, Arthur's wife, her school was shut down. Um, there were raids uh, on the Bund's uh, headquarters, uh, some members um, especially the members who were communists who were targeted mm-hmm. because they were communists were uh, interned for a few weeks in uh, concentration camps um, uh, and so very rapidly the group had to utterly reorient itself and think about how how was it going to survive and and also um, what what its role could be because you know obviously the vision that it had had was not that it should mm-hmm. stay at 200 members but that it gradually through outreach and lectures and all these other things you would gradually create a movement well that was that was not going to happen <laughs> under nazi rule so what was the what was the group's uh role uh, now and that was something i think that uh, that really must have uh, um hit it like a sledgehammer in answering not just the sort of threat, but the sudden sudden worry that they'd become useless. Was there any worry uh, or, uh, or or were there any cases where members of the Bund seemed to be attracted to the ideas of the Nazi or at least some of the ideas of the Nazi? Yeah, this is interesting. You know, one thing I, yeah. I, I just want to step back for a moment, Kelly, and, and uh, just uh, throw into the mix is clearly this is a book mm-hmm. about an interesting group, and it's a group that uh, turns out to be extraordinarily well documented. I don't think there's any sort of re- rescue group that's as well mm-hmm. that are documented uh, as this one through letters, diaries, and so on, and that's part of what made it such a sort of magical and fascinating subject to study but partly because of that i i also wanted this to be something of more general interest namely what does it do to our understanding of Mm -hmm. of rescue and resistance if we have the contemporary records that let us question a bit the way in which we tend to have talked about it which is very often on the basis uh, for understandable reasons, on the basis of later interviews and memoirs, and particularly rescue, rescue in Nazi Germany, rescue in the Holocaust, has been told almost exclusively retroactively. It's often with interviews with survivors and their rescuers decades after the event. So one of the one of the things that I was sort of very conscious of all the way through in this book is thinking about. What happens when you juxtapose contemporary records which exist here and either the general assumptions that we have based on on memory or, and that's the other sort of amazing thing about the group, is that after the war, the group itself laid down its own memories in the sense that there's lots of records of discussions it had, of publications it put out and so on, documenting what it had done. But obviously... Uh, as it saw it now in the post-war period, and so there's that there's there's our general sense based on memory, but there's also their particular mm-hmm. memories, and so this seems to me this question that you've asked me mm-hmm. now about groups being drawn. This is one of those uh, um, questions which, of course, in retrospect, for a, a resistance group, um, is one that we rarely encounter because it's, it's not the case that people afterwards want to talk about. They probably don't even mm-hmm. remember the fact that there was a certain amount 
of openness in the early period, wondering what kind of a group this uh, this is. And uh, certainly there were young members of the group who sort of hearing the socialist side of national socialism and seeing uh, the ways that they were trying to engage with uh, ordinary workers thought that there might be some, you know, space in this in this new movement for them uh, to to act. And I have one or two, you know, very concrete examples of of, uh, of individuals who had to be kind of mm-hmm. torn away, um, and, and and of the and of the group sitting down and really thinking through: Is there anything about this movement that? Uh, that that is right, and it came to the conclusion that that there wasn't. But what's interesting, and I think what what's lost from view, if we simply look at the post-war accounts, is that they felt they had to do that. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So so let's turn there, because you've used the term rescue and resistance. Um, I wonder if, if you could start thinking about this issue by just um, saying a little bit about the experiences of Lisa and Marianne and, and how the group became involved in in helping them, uh, helping them hide and survive. Uh, I think that for the first few years of Nazi rule, the group's main effort was kind of finding ways Mm -hmm. to sustain itself, ways to meet uh, without being uh, detected, uh, ways to strengthen each other's sort of resolve and will and so on. How, in other words, to maintain some sense Mm -hmm. of an active, uh, a group and that wasn't stultified by the new atmosphere um, and wasn't wasn't and, and, and couldn't meet without yeah. being endangered. Um, it may be that they did more than that. I know, for example, that uh, that there was uh, they there were some there were left wingers on the run that they that members uh, hid uh, for for periods and things like that. But I think that was their that was their main. Uh, that was the main thrust of their activity. Uh, Crystal Night, uh, or the Reich Pogrom Night, the the night uh, when in November 1938, when uh, um, the uh, Nazis mounted a, a huge assault on Jews throughout Germany, um, invading homes, beating people up, uh, destroying uh, synagogues, destroying Jewish shops. Um, and then very rapidly turning uh, tens of thousands of Jewish men to put pressure uh, on their families to accelerate uh, the emigration process. Uh, That was a wake-up call for the group. Um, It it had one or two Jewish members left. It had had many more, but by 38, most of its Jewish members had managed to emigrate. It had a couple left. Uh, and as I say, Dora, the co-founder, was was uh, Jewish herself. Uh, and at, from this point on, uh, the group begins to reach out to do what it can to help uh, to help uh, Jews in the in the region where the where the groups were were based. And one of the things I think I I wanted to bring out was you know we. So you, you, you mentioned Marianne and Lisa. These are two uh, women who were helped by the group to survive over a long term. 
Uh, and of course, that's in some ways the climax of their story, the, the people whose lives they saved through mm-hmm. the long-term help. But um, I wanted to render visible something I think that we often forget, which is that often such actions were preceded by, and actually in many ways not so different from, a, a much larger palette of mm-hmm. gestures of mm-hmm. help, um, which could be, well, like the example that I, that I begin the book with is, is someone who, after Kristallnacht turned up at the home uh, of some Jewish acquaintances, which had been utterly gutted uh, by, uh, by the assault in, in November, uh, with a bouquet of flowers. Um, and uh, she had to brave a mob that was still outside the house. She sort of uh, fought her way in. Uh, and obviously, I mean, had no sense beforehand that the house was so destroyed, there was probably nowhere to even put down the um, flowers. I doubt there was a vase still intact, um, or a vase, <laughs> you would say, uh, still intact. But, uh, but, uh, but nevertheless, a simple gesture of solidarity, uh, um, that kind of thing, and, and then over time it becomes more exp- extensive. I think one of the most important things that the group does, for example, is it sends parcels, I would say thousands of parcels, uh, containing small amounts of foodstuffs or clothing and so on, to Jews who'd been deported to Poland, and after they were no longer able to receive them, then to Theresienstadt. It continued until uh, late to be able to send parcels to the ghetto stroke concentration camp uh, in in Theresienstadt. Uh, And, of course, these were immensely significant, not only in supplying much-needed goods that recipients could either consume or barter, but also in the sort of boost to morale that that such parcels Mm -hmm. gave in, uh, in, in saying, you know, you're not forgotten. So, so can I hear? So, because yeah. I, the reaction I had when I read about that, and I suspect the listeners' reactions, how is that possible? How did they not yeah, get no, arrested? I know. It's, absolutely, it's really amazing. It's really amazing. So, for example, you know, the, it was possible to go to a German post office with a parcel that was addressed to someone in Poland and the post would <laughs> deliver it. Uh, it, it, or, or Theresienstadt and the post delivered it. And I think the group kept being surprised by uh, what it discovered was, was possible. Um, helping Jews was not openly criminalized until uh, October 1941, although, you know, uh, uh, you, you would come under a lot of mm-hmm. pressure and, and could be subject to violence and all that. The, from October 1941, it was, and, and in terms of a, an ordinance that sort of bypassed the court, so that meant you were then in the hands of the Gestapo. And uh, there are people in Germany who are killed, um, or uh, others imprisoned in concentration camps for helping Jews. <coughs> so there were very real risks uh, that you were you were running, but at the same time, it turned out <coughs> that if you were willing to take risks and uh, uh, and you you had the nerve, and I think it was very important that there was a group involved, and not just one individual. In other words, that they could strengthen each mm-hmm. other's resolve, that they could provide communal resources, and so on. Um, uh, that uh, that it was surprising what was possible. Uh, so, for example, you know, there was a, a woman that they made connection with via a, a rabbi in Duisburg who had connections with Jews who'd been deported early on uh, from eastern Germany into into Poland, and so they had the name of someone who they used as uh, that they wrote to, and she would distribute goods to those in need around her, um, and she would write back to several different names and addresses so that. Uh, uh, the correspondence didn't always go to one person, and therefore it mm-hmm. wasn't kind of so visible or obvious that uh, this was the sustained 
connection. So there too, the the network and the group make something possible. Um, But uh, it's still remarkable uh, what, what you could do. So I, um, oh, well, let me back up. Actually, um, I just interviewed Evgeny Finkel, who wrote, who's, who's wrote a uh-huh, book. Yes. The listeners haven't, haven't heard the interview about uh, reasons why Jew, individual Jews made specific kind of choices about how they would respond to Nazi oppression in Poland and in, in, in ghettos in particular. And he makes a point about the importance of pre-war experience of repression in creating the possibilities for um, Jews in ghettos or around ghettos to participate in resistance or evasion. That doesn't seem mm-hmm. to actually apply to the wound. They seem to have had the opportunity to act publicly and freely in the period before 1933, and yet they're remarkably good at... Um, at exploiting those kind of opportunities you lay out while um, while while making sure that they minimize the chance for arrest or uh, or, or even simply the possibility the neighbor will denounce them and the, the, the police will knock in the door and find long lists of, of members. How, how, how does the one successfully trans... Uh, a trans- mm-hmm. make that transition point. Well, of course, they're, they're not a they're not a Jewish group, and they had some yeah. Jewish members. So, in some ways, the the, the, the context is different. But in other words, I think his book is helpful because um, I think one of the things that he argues very strongly is that groups that had uh, had uh, ghettos where there had been stronger pre existing connections mm-hmm. to the. Polish community before mm-hmm. the war uh, tended to do worse when it came to engaging in outright mm-hmm. resistance because their instincts uh, uh, and their connections meant that they were. I, I, I seem to remember if that's right. It's sometimes since I read the book, but I seem to remember that, in other words, that there's something about the sort of culturation yeah. that actually, when it comes to uh, your instinct to form, to to form. A, an active resistance, in other words, not to be seduced or to be somehow betrayed mm. into cooperating with a system that's going to destroy you, um, uh, that, uh, that that was very significant. That pre-war mm-hmm. history was very determinative mm-hmm. about whether ghettos would develop a, a strategy. For, and and in some ways, I do think that's that's relevant here, but in in a way that backs up your question, namely. That the the the, the uh, Bund was of course a German group, and so the pressure to fit in, the pressure to, for example, be loyal during the war, not to rope the boat when Germany was at war, um, those kinds of pressures of neighbours who were supporting our government, our troops in the field, and all those uh, pressures was enormous, and I think that's why. So few groups like mm-hmm. the the Bund uh, actually it, within Germany actually uh, managed to maintain their resolve, uh, maintain their identity, and not be betrayed through friends, neighbours, acquaintances, or others who feel that what they're doing uh, is a, is a national betrayal mm-hmm. or a, uh, or illegal or whatever. So I think. So I think you're, in some way, you're right that his 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 book, if you like, accentuates mm-hmm. one's surprise at their ability mm-hmm. to nonetheless. And I think it's not so much; uh, it's partly about how are they able to act, but it's above all about that act of will that was required to recognize that everything that's going on around you is actually wrong. That although you're breaking the law, it's the law that really should be illegal. And you're the people who are actually uh, in in the right. I think that really took um, an enormous uh, act of will. It, it, I think it was easier for a group than, in, than an individual, but not not easy for a group either. And you know, many of the the members of this group, although the group was hostile to organised religion, many of the members of the group were came from fairly. Uh, 
uh, pious backgrounds uh, from sort of the, the sort of Protestant regions, pietistic um, uh, regions in Wuppertal. And I think there is something, uh, there is something, a sort of transmuted sense of religious conviction, uh, which is helping to create this moral uh, sense of purpose. They do sometimes look a bit like a, a sect, although they saw themselves very much as a, as a political uh, grouping. And I think that, that was very helpful in maintaining that, that resolve, even when there's so many pressures round about to go with the regime, accept its terms, and, and not to be uh, wishing for, for German defeat, which they, which they certainly were. So you've laid out there and in the book a, a kind of a thoughtful set of explanations for why people in the Bund um, acted to assist, whether you want to call that rescue or resist or whatever, and, and maybe you can address that. But can you say a little bit about how historians and others have and in the past tried to explain choices to rescue and resist and, and how your study meshes or supplements or contradicts some of those explanations? Yeah, absolutely. Well, as, as, as you say, I think there's, there's a number of different things wrapped up in that. One, one is um, how do you explain um, what makes a group tick and, and what, what it's able to do and what it chooses to do. Um, but the, another is what kind of labels do you use for it, what do you regard as resistance and, and should we be calling it rescue uh, and, and so on. And uh, when it comes to resistance, I think there's been over the last decades uh, a very sort of sophisticated discussion about what exactly we might mean by resistance. So, for example, do we mean a group that's actively trying to topple the regime, which would be a perfectly legitimate way to use the word? And if that were the case, then clearly this group that I'm looking at was not doing that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they were uh, cautious even to circulate leaflets because they recognized that when you put up leaflets, it attracted attention and very often and very rapidly led to the downfall of the group that had done it. So they are uh, very cautious in that way. Um, uh, if resistance uh, means simply um, not quite going with the flow, uh, but like electrical resistance, you, you mm. make it a little bit hard for the current to go down the wire, uh, that seems a little bit a modest way of describing what they did. I think it, you know sometimes used, people talk about inner emigration mm -hmm. or, you know, where um, uh, individuals or groups had, had maintained in their hearts a space that was definitely not Nazi. Uh, that, that, seems a, that seems entirely inadequate to describe what the group did. So, and I think in, over the last sort of, say, a couple of decades, there's sort of been a discussion that captures the array of possibilities of nonconformity, of active opposition, of of, of uh, uh, humanitarian resistance, which you might convey what they're doing and, and so on. But when it comes to rescue as a term, I think perhaps we've been a little bit less good at thinking through uh, what that might mean. And I think we've tended, first of all, we've often tended to conceptualize it very much as an individual uh, act so that somebody out of the goodness of their heart has rescued another. And that certainly does happen but i think in the german context particularly one should very often be thinking about more or less informal networks that are involved it's very rare that somebody is able to help entirely on their own they're almost always in some ways depended on uh, passive or active uh, assistance uh, of others so so there's the individual side but there's also, I think, the problem with rescue is that we it tends to make the recipient of help rather passive. Mm. So you think of somebody who's struggling in the river being pulled out to this, the river bank from the seething maelstrom. Whereas, in fact, the, you mentioned the examples of Lisa Jacob mm. and Marianne Strauss, two of the people who were helped for the longest time to survive underground by the group. They had to be extraordinarily resourceful. 
Uh, and uh, so without uh, an enormous amount of courage and resource on the part of those who are being assisted, uh, it was very hard for them to survive. But also, I think, rescue implies a a single or a, a very clear willed act, I'm going to rescue mm. them. Whereas very often what we're talking about is chains of help, uh, assistance given to spend some time here, assistance given in some rations because the people on the run no longer have ration cards there, assistance in getting uh, some false ID so that you could pass checks on the on the train and, and trams, etc., etc., etc. So, in fact, rescue turns out to be something that, in retrospect, is clear. But at the time, if you were able to look at what's going on in the contemporary moment, is made up of a series of gestures of help and a very active self-help mm-hmm. uh, and resource by people who were, in one way or another, uh, on the on the run. So, I think rescue is the concept that uh, that. Uh, deserves to be looked at again and that's part of what I've, uh, I've I've tried to do with this uh with this book and some historians and sociologists have attributed this to personal characteristics the ability to empathize with others the um sense of living in a particular kind of moral world in which you need to live up to religious standards um, how does the explanation you've given for the willingness of many of the people in the boon, how, how does that fit those older explanations? Or, or maybe what can you add to those? Right. Well, obviously, if you're part of a network and your relationships within the network are important, then one thing you you then can't do is simply explain people's behavior in terms of their own personal relationship to the victims Mm -hmm. because at least as important uh, is how they relate to other members of their own group. Possibly there's also empathy there, but it's a different kind uh, of relationships. And I think, you know, the group, the the Bund in this case, uh, placed a great deal of emphasis afterwards looking back on its philosophy and whilst um, personal connections and so on, I think were clearly important. I think one has to uh, to a certain extent, take it at its word and say, you know, clearly it's not just about empathy. Clearly people are being motivated by a sense of what's right and what's what's wrong. Uh, and and the group, you know, creates a lot of pressure. You know, if, if the group leadership decides that you have to act and, and, and conveys a sense of mission and says, look, now you have to be willing to step over your fears, you have to break through your own reserve and you have to reach out, then... This is a this is a very tightly bound group. This is a group with a strong sense of collective mission. Well, then you jolly well have to go out and do that. And mm. so the, the group puts steel in your spine. Uh, and so then you're you're thinking in a rather different way about the the dynamics and pressures that. Uh, and I certainly don't want to say that these aren't empathetic individuals, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and no doubt their feeling for their fellow man was part of what led them into the group. Uh, in the first place, but clearly those individual mechanisms, why does one individual reach out to help and another not, is it doesn't work as soon as you're you're thinking about, first of all, a group that has ideas and philosophy, so you have to think a bit about what it is that makes them tick, but also <clears throat> any kind of <clears throat> network where, <clears throat> excuse me, where you may be being called upon <clears throat> by someone else to act and so at least as important is the fact that you've been asked by that other person <clears throat> and whatever commitment you've made to them as it, as as it, as it is your relationship to the person that you're you're reaching out to to help so i think we need to uh, uh think about these larger contexts think about group action <clears throat> think about uh, all those sorts of pressure i think part of the problem again is that a lot of the work on rescue of personality and so on is based on interviews you know 30 40 mm-hmm. 50 years uh, after the end of the world well by that time of course people have had time to uh, reorient themselves by then it's clear who were the bad guys and who were the who were the good guys it's clear that the world now recognizes your actions 
as good actions. And so when you're being interviewed, you're being interviewed in the context of someone where you know that they morally value what you've done. And I don't want to, again, downplay some of the fascinating studies that have been based on interviews, but it clearly is a very different thing to try and recover what's making people act in the moment than, than trying to build a picture of their personality decades after the event in the very different uh, post-war conditions of, of, of looking, looking back. How do, the, how do the members of the Bund remember their actions in the writings after the war? Now that's it. That's really interesting. And that, I think that was one of the things that for me was really fascinating about the group was that um, one didn't have to stop the story in 45, mm-hmm. but one could uh, look at their post-war lives and, and how what had happened in the war had, had shaped their post-war lives and how they themselves look back on what they'd, on what they'd done. And in some ways it's a rather a sad story because they, mm-hmm. they, they came out of the war uh, with a sense that they, they really had passed uh, the, the hardest test imaginable. And I think they had. Uh, mm-hmm. They really had. Uh, and they thought that uh, this was <clears throat> going to equip them uh, to provide a real leadership role in, <clears throat> in rebuilding a better post-war Germany. Um, and very rapidly, they find that uh, uh, they not only don't mobilize a new following, uh, but they're really unable to win over a new generation of young people, uh, and that they, uh, in, in one context after another, they don't get recognized for what they do, so they, they don't get recognized um uh, uh for uh, as uh, as resistors mm-hmm. uh, or at least have to fight to do so when it comes to sort of restitution and compensation and then when uh, historians begin to write about um the sort of grassroots resistance in the 1960s they don't get recognized because they don't quite look like uh the active resistance against the regime uh, that people at that point were looking for, as I say, in the decades since then, we've we sort of revised how we think about uh, resistance, mm-hmm. um, uh, and 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 so on and so forth. And so they have this uh, repeated experience of sort of being being rebuffed, if you like, by the wider public. So I think the way in which they try and present their own past responds a bit to what's going on. So in the immediate post-war period. They're trying to talk up their uh, their, ac- their active uh, role as 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 resistors and uh, 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 emphasise their activity. Uh, later, they they give what they've done a bit more of a spiritual cast and and think about it in terms of uh, uh, a sort of the forming of an insight into the understanding of how history works and uh, and the sort of underlying force that's guiding the world through their tribulations in the Nazi era. So I think their own way of thinking about it reacts a bit to the sort of expectations and, and also some of the rebuffs that they, they're getting from the wider community. And it's only very, very late on uh, that they uh, what they did begins to be recognised at a point at which most of the active members had, had already died. And then I think um, there starts to be a li- little bit more of a, an understanding of, of what their achievement uh, had been. And, and when I published the, the book about Marianne Strauss, which also, mm. you know, obviously featured them a little bit, um, a book a book called The Past in Hiding, or A Past in Hiding in the US, um, which also came out in Germany, that I think helped to uh, give them a little bit more uh, limelight. And they were then... Uh, finally, some of the members were finally recognised by Yad Vashem in, in Jerusalem as, mm-hmm. as as righteous of the of the nations. Um, although one of the things I, I do talk about in the book is that that still fits into that very individualised mm-hmm. uh, recognition of the individual as the righteous. Whereas I think by then, you know, all the all the protagonists had died, but, but some of the children were around to see it. But I, uh, uh, of course, very pleased. But I think for the group, it would have seemed a little bit of a travesty because, you know, it wasn't individuals as far as they were concerned. 
what had triumphed was 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 the group as a whole. So this story about memory and recognition, I think, is absolutely fascinating one but also as i say like quite a sad one because uh, mm-hmm. the group really didn't didn't get the the resonance and didn't didn't attain the significance it really felt it had merited with good reason so any study we're, we're coming to the end of our time any study um answers questions but also poses them i wonder what where given your experience with this this research what what questions do Holocaust historians or genocide historians or scholars? What do we need to ask that that you're reminded of, or that you're um, that are brought to the front of your mind from the process of doing the research? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I think one of the challenges that uh, that we have in writing about Holocaust, writing about genocide, is how do we how do you how do you write an ethical history without writing mm-hmm. an overly moralizing history? And clearly, mm-hmm. one sense that something horrific has happened here, and one sense of actions that are utterly wrong, uh, and one's effort to recover things that seem uh, kind of marvelous or heroic, are underlying impulses that that guide the fascination with the subject. Otherwise, we wouldn't be writing about it, we wouldn't be reading about it. I mean, those mm. ethical issues are fundamental. And yet at the same time, I do think that, for example, uh, the, the way that people have talked about rescue has really been uh, hindered by an overly moralizing approach, which has really not enabled us to see the world of the protagonist at the time and creates a, a rather artificial sense of heroes uh, that that I think is not helpful. So that's a real challenge because I don't want mm. to say that we shouldn't recognize the heroic actions. Of course we should. But how do we write about them in a way that really captures the dilemmas and challenges and choices and constraints of the time and yet is true to the underlying ethical impulse that makes the, the subject of value and importance uh, from the beginning, and that's—I I don't think there's one solution, but I think one has to be aware of the uh, aware of that. I mean, I mean, for example, just to give you a, a, a one example, when it comes to help, one of the things that really struck me when I was looking at the contemporary perceptions recorded by Arthur Jacobs in his diary in 1941, mm. 42, 43, is anybody who reaches out to help um, uh, Jews who are persecuted in the Holocaust fails to reach out to help many, many, many more people than they help. I mean, it's absolutely inevitable because the scale of the operation means, so your overwhelming experience is actually a passivity and powerlessness. Now, mm-hmm. after the war, of course, we rightfully celebrate the things they did do. And I, you know, this is not a critique. This is not, this is, no, it was impossible to do to help the most so uh so there but already in me having to say that shows that one's in a sort of moral minefield because mm-hmm. really capturing the experience of the helpers of the time is one of overwhelming powerlessness and in fact that overwhelming powerlessness that sense of powerlessness is an important fact because the fact that one then acts is in some ways even more remarkable because you might well feel well you know, I couldn't help 99 out of 100. Isn't it arbitrary? I helped this one uh, out of 100. So again, I think the challenge is how do we write a history of Holocaust and genocide that isn't obfuscated by our moral categories while mm. remaining true to that underlying, uh, underlying impulse? I think that, that's, that's the real challenge here. Well, I was... Um always ended the interviews with the same question. Um, and so I wonder if you could um, suggest to the audience, uh, and to me, I've got just a couple days left before classes start. Um, <laughs> is there a book or a movie or something that was, that was meaningful to you or important to you as you were doing this research that you think the audience should, should read or watch? Uh, yeah, a couple, I would say. Um, a book, uh, Nicholas Stargardt, The German mm. War. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I found uh, fascinating because 
what he does using diaries and and uh, and other uh, sources is capture, if you like, the perception of ordinary Germans and how it was possible for moral upright, ethical individuals to feel they were doing the right thing and going along with the Nazi regime. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was very important in helping to understand the, the, the context which made what the Bund did so special. So that, so, but I think in any case, it's a fascinating uh, book uh, 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 capturing the, the, the sort of psychology um, of, uh, of, uh, of the population in the, in the Nazi era and very beautifully written and sort of sensitively uh, observed. Uh, sort of capturing subjectivities, I would say, you know, what, what, what are actually people thinking? Uh, how are they perceiving that? So, so this was, uh, this was really great history. In terms mm -hmm. of a film, the book, the film, it hasn't had such a splash in the UK. It's a sort of semi-documentary, semi-drama, uh, uh, sort of docudrama uh, film, uh, the, the Invisibles, um, mm -hmm. uh, about uh, the uh, German Jews who survived or didn't survive uh, in Nazi Berlin. Uh, and it's it's all based on on true uh, stories, many of which are sort of historically well documented, um, and that's uh, that really captures, I think, uh, the pressures and the degree to which those who uh, were helped have to help themselves. I mean, the, the incredible emotional strength and resourcefulness that was required uh, to uh, to keep going, and the ways in which you would sort of reach out and get helped and one more book if i may an mm -hmm. absolutely amazing memoir uh, she's died uh, now um called by mary uh mary simon s-i-m-o-n and i'm just trying to think mm. what the english title is the the german title is uh untergetaucht uh and it's about um let's see i had that in mind and i've now forgotten the english title anyway it's mary simon s-i-m-o-n mm -hmm. Um, uh, and it, it literally translated to be something like diving under, uh, and it's about a young woman who survived, uh, living a young Jewish woman who survived living underground in Berlin. Absolutely remarkable. Now, that is uh, based on a, a later narrative, but her memory is absolutely incredible. She, mm. she dictated it to her son in 70 cassettes <laughs> and uh, uh, and he then uh, he then and he was a historian Hermann Simon and then uh, and then he turned it into this uh, this uh, this book uh, but it really a truly truly remarkable uh, account and I'm sorry that I don't have the title but uh, I say Mary Simon uh, is, the, and, uh, is the author I will put the uh... I will put the title in the show notes okay uh, on, on the website okay. um, uh, and, that, and I will say for I will say for um, people who have not been listening to the podcast for very long, I had Nicholas Stargard on the show when his book came out, and it is a wonderful book, and, and, and you can get a taste of the book from the interview, and then you should go read the book uh, as well, because it's fascinating. Uh, what are you working on now, Mark? Uh, well, a couple of things, but uh, sort of the big project is as I'm the, the general editor of the Cambridge History of the Holocaust, which will be a, mm. a four-volume uh, history with a hundred uh, authors <laughs> uh, uh, offering a, a sort of up-to-date sense of the scholarship uh, on on uh, on all the different facets of the Holocaust. So there's a volume on origins and context, uh, a, a volume on policies and perpetrators, uh, a volume on victims, uh, and uh, and a volume on outcomes aftermath um and so that's a very exciting uh project which will take up a fair bit of my time over the next couple of years <laughs> i think that's maybe an underestimate but <laughs> working with 100 plus collaborators you have both our um thanks and our sympathies um <laughs> but i hope uh, at some point when as you move on with that project and volumes are uh, published you'll be uh, willing to come back on the show and talk about them but until then thank you so much for being with us i really appreciate your time and i wish you the uh, 
a great beginning of the school year and a, a great time working with those authors. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.